We're up to really just the first very short um, third of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Creator, or Maker of heavens, heaven and earth. Is that what it says? Someone read it out for me. It's the first, I believe. Yep, that's it, good. Uh, We're going to talk this morning about what it means to call God Father. I'm going to give you a summary of life, the universe and everything. Here it is. For all eternity, the Father has loved the Son in the unity and joy of the Holy Spirit. That's what everything is all about. Uh, Before this world even existed, that's what everything was all about. The Father loved the Son in the unity and joy of the Holy Spirit. God, our triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Flowing out of that, the Father had a plan and his plan was to honour his Son, whom he loves. This plan involves a creation full of creatures made in the image of his son who would participate in this divine love by being filled with the spirit and enjoying this same love that the father and the son know for each other. And human history from the word go, from the very beginning, has been the outworking of that plan. The father expresses his love towards the son And he does that by creating people who are brought in to participate in that. And everything is still on track with that plan. Human sin and evil and all that never derailed the plan. Um, You could say the plan was like the train on the tracks heading to its destination. Because from eternity, before this world was created, it was already decreed as part of this plan that the Son would enter into this world as one of us and would give up his life to redeem us and to bring us into the Father's family as adopted children. Uh, We heard that in the the reading, didn't we? Uh, Verses 4 and 5 of Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, in other words, the plan was being rolled out and then it reached its fullness... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you know your ultimate destination is not to go to heaven when you die? That's not, that's not your ultimate hope. Your ultimate destination is the Father to be adopted as a son, as a daughter, as a child. If you are a Christian, your identity is a child of God. Our our culture is very big on identity at the moment, I think, uh, and very big on making it very clear that it is your right to choose whatever identity you want for yourself should never allow anyone to tell you how to express yourself. That's, that's your freedom to do that. No one can tell you 
who you are and what you are. You may have heard that um, on Facebook there are currently uh, 58 suggested, suggested options for a person's gender identity. Um, in fact, you don't have to even pick one of those, you can make up your own. As I discovered recently, I changed my gender to regular flat white. <laughs> and you can do it. And you can't tell me that I can't identify as a regular flat white. Uh, incidentally, if you're ever going to buy me a coffee, that's what I'd like. Thanks, regular <laughs> flat white. But gender and sexuality, they're just kind of the, the trendy identity thing at the moment, aren't they? In a previous generation, it was something else. In the next generation, it will be something else. Uh, ethnicity, religion, family, job, where you live, your tribe, your music taste, the clothes you wear, a myriad of other things that are dumped on us or claimed by us as these are the things that you can take to choose your identity and say who you are. This first line of the creed actually challenges that whole idea when it says God is the Father, the Almighty Father, the maker of heaven and earth. All those things might be a part of who you are. They might make up part of your identity and the way you live. But a Christian's core identity, a human being's core identity is to be a child of God. And that's fundamentally because God is the Father and he created you to be a child, to be his child. Father, when we talk about God as Father, it's not a metaphor. Uh, The Bible doesn't uh, generally say God is like a Father. Jesus just calls him the Father. He says, when you pray, pray, say, our Father. Uh, When he was speaking to Mary after he'd risen from the dead, he says, I go to be with my Father and your Father. See, it's not a metaphor. God is not... It's not just an image from humanity, our human experience that we've projected onto God. Said, oh, God's kind of a bit like fathers. He is the father. In fact, human fathers are supposed to be a reflection of his fatherhood. But we, we are the metaphor, not, not God. You might struggle, maybe, to refer to God as father. It might be just because you're not used to that kind of terminology, maybe in your church or wherever, it's just not something that's normally used to talk about God as Father. Or it might be that your own experience of fatherhood, of human fatherhood, is, is poor or weak or even fearful. It may be that you've had an absent father or a father who's been present but really absent or maybe a father who's been absent, uh, been present in a fearful kind of way. What we need to see is that fatherhood, true fatherhood, begins with God. Since he's always been the father. And he's always been the perfect father. Just ask Jesus. Jesus is the one who tells us what God's fatherhood is like. So, as I said, we're supposed to, as particularly men, but also women as mothers... 
Uh, we are supposed to reflect the fatherhood of God in the way that we relate uh, to not only to our children but to all people. Um, I'm not your literal father, but I'm, I'm old enough to be your father. Um, and really, I, I should see you guys as my children and relate to you and reflect something of God's fatherhood in the way I relate to you. It's the most liberating thing a human being can say. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, if we say it in the truest sense. Remember, as we saw last night, uh, faith, belief, Christian belief is not just an intellectual thing. It's not just saying, I assent to the idea that the first person of the Trinity is the Father. That's one little part of it. To say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, is to say, I believe, know, love, trust, worship God as my Father. Now, to say that this creator of the universe is the Father makes creation, this world we live in, an intensely personal thing because it's the Father who created it, not just kind of the omnipotent, powerful God out there. The Father created this world as a gift of love to his Son and to us. You know, we, we've been trained to think of it as just objective and impersonal. You know, just think of it through the lens of science so we can analyse it and describe it and reduce it down to the interaction of atoms and energy. Creation is a gift of love and it's intensely personal. Uh, Colossians 1.16 says about Jesus, all things were created through him and for him. If you know uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about how we, we don't need to worry about tomorrow. What will I eat? What will I wear? Who's going to look after me? He says, don't worry about that. He says, look at, look at the grass and look at the birds. See how your father cares for those things. He clothes the grass with beautiful flowers. Why? Why did God create flowers? Why did he create them to be beautiful? <coughs> it's not just a purely functional thing so that the bees get attracted and they pollinate and they reproduce. He could have done that in some other way, but he created grass to have this beautiful flower because he takes delight in grass because it's his creation and he loves it and it's a gift of love. And Jesus uses that example to say, well, how much more does your heavenly Father care for you? If God takes delight in a blade of grass, what an incredible thing to think. How much more does the Father take delight in me, his child? Jesus says it's an act of faith to trust that the Father takes personal pleasure in me. Now, the Bible uses two, two key images to convey for us what it means for a person to be brought into this family relationship where we know God as Father. First is adoption. 
Did you notice in that passage this thing that flows uh, significantly out of a person who has been adopted to be a son of God? That word son there uh, is kind of a, it's, it's a male title, but it's not saying, you know, girls, uh, when you become a Christian, you have to become a man, or, you know, eventually he'll turn you into a man. Uh, the idea of sonship in the ancient world uh, is, is the idea of a position in the family. So the firstborn son would be heir of the estate and would have responsibility when the father died to take over as the head of the household. They would receive the full inheritance. So it's an incredibly privileged position. It's also a position with great responsibility. And so to say we receive adoption as sons means we're brought into that position of status where the father looks at us and says, you are my firstborn son and I'm handing everything I have into your hands. I heard recently of a Christian couple who had adopted a little girl. They did all the legal paperwork, everything, all the hoops you have to go through, lots of money you have to pay to go through the process. Uh, They went and they picked her up, they brought her back to their home and she settled into life in their home, doing all the things that their flesh and blood children were doing, participating in the life of the family. However, the point that was the turning point, at least from the perspective of the parents, was one day when this little girl that adopted came up to him and said, Daddy, I need a new shoelace. It wasn't that she needed a new shoelace. It was that she had realised this man and this woman are my mummy and daddy and I can, I can call them mummy and daddy. That's what Paul is saying here. God adopts us as children and the, the response from the core of our being, from our, from our gut, is to cry out, Abba. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that little children would use of their father, Jewish children. That was, it was like daddy, it was like papa. Uh, this, this cry of, you're my father and I know I can come to you for anything and ask for anything I need because I'm completely secure in your love. That's adoption. That is, that is your destiny if your faith is in Jesus and you've been brought into the family. The other image that's used in the Bible is marriage. When Jesus invites us into his life, it's not just as a citizen of his kingdom, but a member of the Father's household, as we've been seeing. Um, I don't think I've got it up there. So if you've got a Bible there and you can find it quickly, John chapter 14, verses 1 to 7. I'll read it. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you, would I have, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You might be thinking, what's that got to do with marriage? Well, what Jesus is actually describing here is what would have taken place in the lead up to a Jewish marriage at that time. Engagement at that time was a formal and binding agreement between two families, so binding that divorce was required to break off an engagement. And we, we see that in the story of Mary and Joseph. They were engaged, Joseph found out Mary was pregnant and thought, well, the only way for me to end this is to actually divorce her. I'll do it quietly so she's not shamed, but it had to be ended in divorce. It was a binding thing. It wasn't um, kind of just a time of preparation that we use it for today. It was, we've made an agreement, um, this covenant between the two families and between the, the man and the woman. Now, the marriage covenant would be secured with a dowry and it was paid to the bride's family and it was like a down payment. But that dowry officially actually belonged to the bride herself. It wasn't to be kept by the, the bride's family. So, engagement was, you know, it was secured with a down payment, with a dowry. Uh, it was the beginning of the marriage, in a sense, in terms of the, the binding nature of it. Now, once engaged... The bridegroom would work hard to either convert or build a room on his parents' home, which would become the honeymoon suite. Uh, It's where the, the marriage would be eventually consummated. And in many cases, that's where the newlywed couple would live, at least for the start of their married life, until they build another home or something. Uh, Now, this could take up to 12 months, however long it would take for this bridegroom to build this house uh, in his father's house, this room in his father's house. Now, while waiting for her fiancé to return and to collect her so they could go off and be the married couple, the bride would prepare herself. She might go through all kinds of beauty treatments to make sure she's free of stain and wrinkle and um, get perfumes Uh, She would use some of the dowry to buy jewellery to adorn herself with. She would wear special clothes to make it very clear to all the other men in the village that I'm engaged, so keep your distance. So she would stand out as, yes, here's an engaged woman. Uh, Don't dare touch her. She wouldn't know when he was going to return, so she'd have to be ready any time for him to come and say, hey, wedding's happening today, let's go. The father of the bridegroom was the one responsible for setting the date and for holding the banquet. Uh, Not even the son would necessarily know when the wedding was going to happen. So if anyone asked him, so what's the date? He would say, only my father knows the day and the hour of the wedding. When the time came, the bridegroom would come and collect his bride and he would announce it as he was approaching with a shofar trumpet blast so she could hear he was coming and quickly get ready and her her bridesmaids could make sure there was oil in their lamps and they could all be ready to go off to the wedding. 
He would collect her with his entourage. He would take her back to his father's house, to the room that was prepared for her. Uh, and the marriage, everyone would be outside, excited in anticipation. The marriage would be consummated. In other words, they would have sex. And when that was, that was finished, however long that took, they would emerge from the room and everyone would say, yay, and they would party maybe for three or five days <coughs> celebrating this, this marriage. So that's marriage in first century Judaism. And that's what Jesus was talking about there. I'm going away, I'm going to prepare a room, then I'm going to come back and take you so you can be where I am in my father's house. And you don't have to worry, my father's house has lots of rooms. There's plenty of space for us to come and be part of this family. Knowing this informs the way we read a lot of what's in the New Testament about the relationship between Jesus and his people, uh, Jesus and the church. If if you've got this picture in the back of your mind, you see imagery popping up all all over the place, right through the the Bible and the New Testament. Uh, As you can probably work out in that timeline of events, Christians are now in that time of waiting. The engagement has been organised, it's secure, we have a down payment, the Holy Spirit, who gives us a guarantee that one day, we don't know when, but it could be any time, we will see our bridegroom come and he'll say, I've come to get you. Come and be with me and be where I am with my father. In this whole process, the bride symbolically becomes a member of the bridegroom's family. She would be able to refer to his father as father. She would be able to share in everything that the father had given his son. The full inheritance would be hers to share with him. By her union to the father's son, she would receive all that the son has, including the son himself and his family. I, uh, I have in-laws and um, it's great. You know, I can, I've got a key to their house. You know, they gave it to me and said, you know, there you go, come in, help yourself, the fridge there. If you want to have a swim, come and use the pool. And you know, if it's hot, so you come in, we've got air conditioning on. You know, it's just like, I'm their son. Even though I'm just some other guy from another family, but I married their daughter and I'm in the family. Um, I still call my father-in-law Daryl, don't call him dad, but my wife calls my dad, dad. Anyway. The thing is though, it's a beautiful picture But there's a crisis, there's a problem, because that is not actually the story for most of humanity. The problem's not with God, the problem's with us. We were created, designed to be children of God, but as human beings we have forfeited our right to sonship. We're like the son in that parable of the prodigal son, who said, I want my inheritance, give me my inheritance But I don't want you, Father. I'm going to take my inheritance. I'm going to go away to another country and enjoy it all on my own terms. I want the inheritance, but I don't want the fatherhood that comes with it. We want all the good things that the Father gives us, starting with life and breath and finishing with everything else. But we want it without the responsibility of being a son or a daughter and we want it without the relationship that's a part of 
But Jesus couldn't have been more blunt when he said this to some people. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Uh, Where is he? Sorry. When he speaks, because there is no truth in him, when he speaks, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The next time someone says to you, oh, you're a Christian, you should be less judgmental like Jesus. Uh, Read him this one. Non-judgmental Jesus, you are of your father, the devil. It was normal for a son to be about the business of his father, working for him, helping him manage the household, uh, learning his trade from his father. So the things that you did as a son showed something of who your father was uh, and reflected on the character of your father. And it showed that you were devoted to your father because you were joyfully doing your father's will. Uh, A faithful son was the best servant because he obeyed not out of this slavish obligation but out of joy and delight because he knew his father loved him and he loved his father and so he willingly did his father's will. Jesus is saying to these people, the way you're living, the things you're doing, showing that God, you're not not relating to God as your father. You actually have someone else that you are devoted to and you're actually doing the things that he wants to do. You're actually living in opposition. And he was saying this to people who were leaders of the Jewish nation. It was a very confronting, shocking thing. Remember that I said uh, last night, we will instinctively worship. And if if we're not worshipping God, we'll worship something else. The same is true of fatherhood. If we don't know that God is our father and we're not secure in that, then we'll find something else to be devoted to that will fill that father-shaped hole that's within us. I see see that dynamic happening all the time. In my time as a youth pastor particularly, you'd see um, a young, young girl who's come out of a a broken home where her father has been absent or abusive and she just kind of seemed inextricably drawn towards other abusive, manipulative relationships with older men. It was almost like she was saying, I haven't had a father, I need to find a father figure. And she would latch onto a man who could try and fill that gap in her life. Or you see it in young men who try and fill that gap with their bravado or their um, macho-ness or their sexual conquest or whatever. They haven't had that security of the father's love uh, in their family and so they're trying to fill it in some other way. Now, it would be wonderful for those people to be reconciled to their earthly father and to have that, that wound healed in their life. But ultimately what they need is to know their heavenly father, the God who created them, who is the perfect father. That's that's all of our need. All of us have that need to know the father. Seeing it in this way also helps us understand death. What is death? Well, death is simply being outside the family, having no rights, no privileges, no benefits of being in the family. When that prodigal son was there in the pigsty eating the pig's food away from his father's house, 
He was basically dead. That's why the father said, let's celebrate when he comes back. My father was dead. My son was dead. Now, why is he alive? Because he's back in the family and he's called me father once again. Hell is being outside the family when every opportunity to return to the father's household has been removed forever. And we're stuck forever in the futility of our own selfishness and loneliness. This is where the gospel comes in. We're going to unpack this a lot more in the next talk tomorrow night, but Jesus is the only one who is able and qualified to bring you into the Father's household. Why? Because he's the Son. He is the only begotten Son. We sung those words, didn't we? If the Son sets you free, you'll be truly free. Why? Not just because he's done a job, but because he is the Son. Um, I am the only one, really, who can say to you, come to my place and meet my family. Why? Because I'm a member of the family. John, uh, just before Jesus had called these people children of the devil, uh, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Remember in Galatians, we were slaves. The slave does not remain in the house forever. In other words, you do your job and then you go out to the servants' quarters. And if you do a bad job, you get fired and you're banished forever. But the son remains forever because he's a member of the family. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now maybe there are some people here today who are, you know are actually in that position, that you're actually in that position of being a slave rather than a son, standing outside the family home. It may be that like the people that Jesus was talking to, you've assumed that everything is fine between you and God. You've grown up maybe in a Christian home, Christian family, gone to church all your life, all those things. And you would say that you believe in God. You believe these things are true, maybe in your head. But you're beginning to see that believing means much more than just an occasional nod in God's direction as you get on with the rest of your life. Kind of give him a a token acknowledgement you may be seeing that you actually do really, really need Jesus if you are going to have a true, dynamic, authentic, life-changing relationship with God the Father. Uh, If that's you, hang in there. Uh, Talk to people, ask lots of questions. Uh, Ask him, ask Jesus to show you what it means to be invited into his family and to know the Father. And make sure you're at the next talk. Because that's where we're going to really flesh out what Jesus has done to actually make it a reality for us and what faith in him uh, truly looks like. What do I pray?